as you're opening your Bibles to the book of Titus. Uh, let's take a few moments to remember why it is that we're in this series. If you're new with us this morning, you need to know that we're in the middle of a series on the book of Titus, which is full of principles that can strengthen the church. It was written to uh, a man who was leading a number of churches in Crete, and his job was to bring those churches in Crete to maturity, strengthen them so that they could face Satan's attacks uh, without the apostles around to help them. The principles in it can strengthen us too. And what the Lord is doing doing here, one way you could say it is that the God who saves us also guides us. He saves us, but he doesn't then just leave us saved on our own to fend for ourselves. No, he guides us as a shepherd takes sheep all the way to the finish line, all the way to the end. And so what I want to do before we even get to the principles of today is I just want to proclaim to you the message that unites all of us together, the message that has brought us into this field. And there may be one or two or even more here who have never heard this message before and so desperately need it. It's the gospel message. Uh, one way you could say this message is that it's sort of like two sides of a coin. Uh, on the tail side of the coin, you see bad news, but on the head side, even better good news. The bad news is that the plight that humanity is in and the plight that I was in and you may be in is so much worse than we ever could have thought that it was. Whatever we think our biggest problems are, there are bigger problems than that that we must reckon with. The biggest one is that the God of the Bible is really there in heaven and is really here among us. And one day we must go and meet him. And that is a problem because we have lived our lives as if he is not real. We have lived our lives accruing more and more debt against him because we continue to refuse to walk in his ways, continue to refuse to give him the worship that he is due. And more and more, this just piles up until finally we go after we die and meet him. Now, you can see why that is a bigger problem than any of us could possibly realize that it is. Well, that's what's on, you could say, the tail side of the coin. On the head side, though, is the good news, and that is that God has already solved this problem for us and offers the solution freely to anyone who would receive it. He has secured forgiveness for anyone who would trust him by sending his son to live a perfect life, now, his son lived a life that rightly worshipped God, his father, and rightly walked in all of God's ways and deserved for no bad thing to happen to him. And even though he lived this life, he willingly died a premature death. He died in his 30s, an excruciating death on a cross. And as he did that, the scripture says he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. So he goes to that cross and dies in our place, paying for our sin. And that is forgiveness that can be received by anyone who would turn and trust in him. That's the message that's gathered us together here today. Now, if you want to receive that and you're wondering, okay, what do I do? We receive that on the occasion of what we call faith. If we have our faith in Jesus, we receive that forgiveness. And that just very simply means looking to Jesus and saying, I am putting all my eggs in that basket, so to speak. Like, you are the one I trust to save me. And if you are not enough to secure my forgiveness, then I will have to go unforgiven because I am putting all of my trust in you, Jesus. If you're willing to do that now, you can count it secured that he extends to you forgiveness. And he calls you to be part of his church. And that is what has gathered us here together as Christians who walk now as sheep under the great shepherd all the way through life. He will get us to the finish line. 
And when we gather like this, he guides us in his ways, good ways that strengthen us. He guides us by fighting for us against unseen spiritual forces that we don't even realize are attacking us. And one of the ways that he guides us is by telling us what to do. This is a lot like a guide who might be taking you through a dangerous part of the jungle. And you've paid this guide and you expect this guide to protect you. And the guide will do that by, you know, slaying any predator that tries to come and get you and keeping you safe and keeping you in just the right place. But another way that the guide protects you is by saying, oh, get down. And when the guide tells you to get down, you get down because you don't, you might not know what's going on, but you get down. When the guide suddenly gives out commands like this, we listen because we know that his motive is to protect us. And Jesus is the same way. He fights for us. He is our champion. He is also our guide who tells us which steps to take and tells us what to do. And so we look through this book of Titus asking, God, what can we as a church do differently to strengthen ourselves against whatever attack comes next year, against whatever predators might be after us next year? And we come to verse 5. We'll look just at verse 5 today, but at one point I will read that whole paragraph so that we can see it in context. The words of the Lord are this in Titus 1, verse 5. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, the backstory again is that Paul and his apprentice Timothy had traveled to Crete seen many churches planted there, which maybe they planted or maybe they're already there. But when Paul had to leave, the churches were not yet mature. And so he left Titus there to bring the churches to maturity, or as he says it here, put what remained into order. And so in that context, let's read that verse again, but let's read the whole paragraph and verse 10 as well to kind of see the broader meaning of these words. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So the logic here is that part of bringing the churches into order is appointing multiple elders in each church. And then for several verses, we have the kind of men that we are to put into that office. And then in verse 10, the beginning of why, because there are some threats out there. And the churches in Crete's case, uh, this circumcision party, a group of ravenous false teachers that was out to get the church. How do we keep them safe? We install multiple men to shepherd the church of Jesus. So we have in those words then guidance from our Lord that if we were to embrace it would strengthen us against satanic attack. So the way that I'm going to do this today is I'll just say the point, and I know some of you out there like to take notes and write things down. So I'm going to say the point a couple of times so those of you that write things down can do that. And then I'll unpack the main point for about the first half of this message today. The point of this text is this. 
A church is weakened against satanic attack until it has appointed multiple pastors, some from within the body. If you're writing down, I'll say it again more slowly. A church is weakened against satanic attack until it's appointed multiple pastors, some of those from within the church body itself. Now, as I say that, I know that is a message that some here in our church body embrace and rejoice to hear preached, and others uh, do not. And so I'm going to spend more time than normal going through the details of this text, how particularly this text and some others say that, so that we can look at the scriptures together and see plainly just what do they say. So the logic of the text, again, is Titus needs to bring the churches to order And the main deal with that is to install multiple elders. That's what you see in verse 5. I've been saying pastors. He says elders. I'll explain why both of those words matter in a minute. Uh, That's what it means to bring the church into order. Then you've got the qualifications. These are the kind of men you're to do. And then you've got why in verse 10, because there are many deceivers out there, because there are wolves out for the church. And the church needs to be protected. So you need lots of guys. These are the kinds of guys you need. Keep the church safe. That's how you do it. So that's the, uh, that's the logic of that text there. But it's not just a one-time thing. This pattern of see the church planted and then step two is install a body of elders or shepherds to rule that church or to lead that church really is a better way to say it. Uh, to lead that church, is actually what the apostles did anytime they could. We see that pattern throughout the book of Acts and in the epistles as well. That's the letters as well. So if you would, turn with me to Acts 14, and we're going to walk for a little bit through Acts. I'm only going to do a couple of the mentions of the elders that had been appointed there. Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. We'll see a good picture into Paul and Barnabas' pattern as they traveled. It says, When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So a couple of important parallels between that pattern and this pattern in Titus. One is that a big part of their message was there are many tribulations coming, right? Through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God. That's very similar to what Paul is telling Titus. There are many deceivers, there are many insubordinate out there, like there are threats out there. And so what they did was, even though they had this great apostolic authority, even though anything they had asked any of the churches to do, the churches would have done, they raise up in each of these cities multiple men in each one who can shepherd and lead that church. And then they pray and commit those men to the Lord. That means they back off and they don't lead the church themselves. They say, we commit this church into the hands of these men. We commit these men to the Lord. So the apostles leave, and they leave other men in charge. They are not setting up a hierarchy over the many churches. They're not saying, we're the apostles, you guys are the churches, all of you guys listen to us. That's not how they're doing it. They're leaving the churches to lead themselves, men within the church to lead it. That is why in the Baptist church here, that's one of many reasons why we don't have a hierarchy for church leadership. Each church is what we call autonomously governed. We have a director of missions here for the association, but I don't report to him. 
the highest office in this church is the pastor of the church, or perhaps one day multiple pastors of the church. There's not a hierarchy above us like that. And the reason we do that is because of this pattern that the apostles set up. They commit the men to the Lord and they leave the church in the hands of those men. As we turn through the page, we see that elders were appointed in many of the churches in the book of Acts. Let's flip over to chapter 20, verse 17. So these next two pieces I'll read are about Ephesus and Jerusalem, probably two of the most established churches in the first century. In verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and then he gives a speech to them. So at the church in Ephesus, one church, many elders there in this established church. And then let's flip over to verse 21, or chapter 21, I'm sorry, I believe it's verse 17. No, 21 verse 18. This is Jerusalem where they see James. I'll start in 17. When they come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. So church in Jerusalem, also many elders. You see that pattern on and on. What eventually will happen is that the church in Jerusalem will have to be scattered because of persecution. And this man who's mentioned here, James, who was one of the elders there in Jerusalem, he writes them a letter scattered throughout the whole world. All of my former church members scattered throughout the world, basically. And that letter is the letter of James, which we have in our Bibles, which I preached through when I first got here a little over a year ago. And in that letter, he tells the Christians all over the world, scattered all over the world, if any of you is sick, let him go to the elders of the church and have the elders pray for him. So he's assuming there are elders in churches scattered all over the world. We see the same pattern in the book of Philippians, the elders in Philippi mentioned there, in the books written to Timothy, in the letter to the, Thessal the first letter to the Thessalonians. Over and over, we see this pattern again, multiple men, multiple elders, multiple pastors leading the church. And so from that pattern and from this prescription written in today's text in verse 5, bring the churches into order by appointing elders in every town. We get the pattern of a church led by multiple shepherds, multiple men who are commissioned together to lead the church. Now, these texts I've been reading keep saying elder, right? And I keep saying pastor. And some of you are wondering, why is he saying pastor when the texts say elder? Uh, the reason for that, I'll go to that next. Why am I saying multiple pastors instead of multiple elders? The reason for that is that the New Testament uses the word for elder, which is sometimes translated differently. Another word that is sometimes bishop or overseer in some verses. And another word that is either shepherd or pastor at different points and in different translations. It uses all three of these words uh, interchangeably. And in order to make that, I think the most sensible way to see that that I have ever seen is uh, a, a diagram that we went ahead and ripped and put in your worship order today. Uh, you guys see that colored Venn diagram there with red, blue, and yellow. Um, some of you love Venn diagrams, I know, and you're like super excited right now. And others of you are like, oh my goodness, did he just bust out a Venn diagram in the sermon? Well, I hope it gets the point across. You can see there, there are many verses that use just one of those words and several that use two of them interchangeably, and then two passages that use both all three, bishop, pastor, and elder, 
altogether. And if you want to, when you go home, you can look those up. I think it's really interesting that a lot of the instances for the word pastor are in Peter's letters. I think that's because Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, and that's dear to Peter's heart. Now, if you look in the yellow section and the blue section between bishop overseer and elder, you'll see that in between them, there is one passage that uses both of those words, and that's today's text. Verse 5 says, appoint elders in every church, and verse 7 says, because an overseer must be above reproach. Just goes right from one to the other, right? It does the same thing in other passages with the word pastor, often translated shepherd. And if you imagine someone painting a picture of a shepherd with his sheep, he's probably in a pasture, right? That's where sheep often graze. And someone might look at that painting and say, oh, that's a very pastoral scene, because that's how you would define that scene. The word pastor comes from the word shepherd. And so uh, one, of, one of you guys here, actually, when I first came here, I think it was the first like eight times that you saw me would call me uh, pastor, bishop, elder, uh, overseer, all of them. Every time he saw me would call me a different one. And that was because he knew that those words all mean the same thing. So that's a little more detailed version of why I'm saying pastor when it says elder, because the offices are the same. When it says elder, it means pastor. It means men like me, men that do what I do. So we've gone through the thread of satanic attack, which we see in verse 10 there, right? We do this to strengthen ourselves against satanic attack. We've gone through the pattern of multiple elders, and then we've gone through why we often call them pastors instead of elders. We could call them other things if we wanted to. Finally, why would I say that many of these men need to be appointed from within? And that's because that's the pattern that we saw all throughout this. Paul tells Titus, appoint elders, right? He doesn't say recruit elders from Jerusalem and from Ephesus from the established churches. They did that sometimes, uh, but usually the large body of elders in the church was from men that were in the church right there. Uh, that's what we saw in Acts as well. They would appoint men in those churches, and then they would leave those men in the charge of the church. So we put all that together to say the main point today, which is that a church is weakened against satanic attack until it has appointed multiple pastors, some of them from within the church body. That's what we're clinging to today. That's what I think we have here in this text today for us. So what does that mean for us? We need to start asking. Um, here's what I think it means practically for us looking back and looking forward. Uh, we have had in our church seasons of great prosperity and we have had seasons of, you might just call them outright slaughter, where Satan and his minions have just won the day for a while. And what I think this text means for us is that we will be better strengthened against tomorrow's attacks if we are led by multiple men, if we are met, led by multiple shepherds and multiple pastors. On the other hand, I believe we will always be more vulnerable to attack. We will always be more vulnerable to whatever the next thing is going to be, as long as there is only one man leading the church. And there are several reasons for that, but maybe I'll just give one illustration that might explain why that would be. So, in World War II, once we joined the war... We had to get all of our soldiers and our equipment and all the supplies across the Atlantic Ocean into Europe where the war was being fought, and to some degree over to Japan where the Pacific Front was fought. Now, there was only one way to get all that stuff across the Atlantic Ocean, and that was by boat. And so we got together these fleets of ships and we sent them across the Atlantic. 
Now, the Axis powers knew that we were doing this, and they anticipated that we would do this, and so they were ready. They had invented a, a type of boat called a U-boat that could go underwater, was very difficult to detect, and could just hang out there underwater until the fleet came, and then just fire torpedo after torpedo onto the fleet. And if undefended, three or four or five of these U-boats could sink a whole fleet of 100 ships in almost no time at all. And so we knew that we had to send escorts. We knew they were doing this U-boat thing, so we had to send escorts. And part of the decision here is, I suppose they could have sent one massive battleship with all the great guns and all the great stuff and let that one super powerful ship try to take down those U-boats. But that wouldn't have worked because the U-boats could have just sank that one ship, put all their efforts onto that, taken the one ship down. And so what we did instead was we sent many, sometimes five, six, sometimes more, small, more modest destroyers alongside the fleet. Those ships could surround the whole fleet and protect it on all sides. And if the U-boats, God forbid, were to sink one of the destroyers, they just shift position a little bit and the fleet is still protected. They can still take down the torpedoes when they come. They can still even go after the U-boats themselves and many times would sink the U-boats that were after them. They were able to do this not with one gigantic battleship, but with several more modest destroyers. That is a better strategy for protecting a fleet when you're trying to get it across the Atlantic Ocean in a very vulnerable area. Our church is much like that. We are like a fleet of ships that the Lord is escorting across the ocean. We will one day get to the harbor together. But until then, there are U-boats and torpedoes and missiles from the sky and all kinds of stuff coming after us. And we don't need one big super ship to sail along with us and protect us. We need multiple modest destroyers around us sailing with us and protecting us. It takes multiple humble escorts to protect a party like that. So one way you could say what God is doing here through this text is, I think, protecting us against the temptation to model our church government after worldly structures that we see around us. Uh, Throughout the ages, the church has very often seen a successful institution beside it and modeled her government after that. Uh, For instance, in the four and five hundreds and beyond, uh, the Catholic Church began to model itself after the monarchies around them. And eventually you see a pope and then you see cardinals and archbishops and this whole layer. It looks very much like a kingdom. Well, that's because they saw kingdoms around them functioning really well. And and part of it was, hey, let's, uh, let's do the same thing that they're doing. Today, many churches are tempted to structure themselves like successful companies around them with a CEO and a board of directors. Um, sometimes we're tempted to structure our churches around the beauties of American democracy, which then winds up leading to factions and leading to parties that are fighting with each other, just like in American democracy. No worldly system works. We have to build our church government on what the Lord tells us. The one that I think he's protecting us against here is what I call the rally around a rock star model, which is very tempting for modern churches. Uh, The way that model works is you find your Steve Jobs or your Elon Musk or your LeBron James and you give him everything that he needs and you build everything around him. It all rests on finding one 
really gifted leader to just champion the church, build up the crowd, lead many people to Jesus, and let's build the whole thing around him. That is not how it's done in the scriptures. That's not how the Lord leads revival typically in the scriptures. He does tend to raise up leaders, but he tends to do it through multiple more modest men. And the rally around the rock star model doesn't work for many reasons. For one, very few pastors are that gifted. There are very few super pastors out there. And if you put the pressure on your search committee to find that one super gifted guy and he's going to come in here and this place is going to blow up, it's like finding a needle in a haystack for them because there are just so few pastors like that. I do believe, while I'm on that topic, I do believe that our church has had a healthy share of very gifted pastors in the past who have been magnetic, who have been able to lead the church to great prosperity. But the truth is, nationwide, there are very few men like that leading churches. That's one reason it doesn't work. Another reason it doesn't work is that when you can find a leader like that, you're completely dependent on him. Now he's built up this great, awesome thing. And if he leaves, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And so we can't really confront him when he starts to slip into sin. We've got to give him everything he wants. We've got to make sure that he doesn't leave and things don't fall apart. Well, that can lead a leader into great temptation and can lead, in many cases, leaders to crash and burn and fall into disgrace publicly. And we have seen many superstar pastors who have celebrity-type influence do that in the last 10 and 20 years. I remember watching Mark Driscoll crash and burn five years ago and was so sad. Uh, most recently, it was Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, you know, the, the big rock star that led Liberty so greatly, and now we're learning about the lifestyle that he was living the whole time. Uh, we leave pastors vulnerable to this when they don't have a group of men that they are held accountable by next to them. This is one of many reasons that we need multiple men leading the church, because if we put it all in one big battleship, well, the U-boats can just sink that one battleship and then we're done. Now we need multiple humble destroyers leading the church. So that's what we call for. That's what I believe the Bible calls for here. And as I proclaim that, I know some of you are wondering, well, how much does this have to do with Dave's vision for the future of our church, right? Like, is he going to try to push us this direction? I want to answer that question as honestly and clearly as I can. Uh, I do pray that God will change the whole heartbeat of our congregation, because uh, if you don't know, our history has been largely just to have one pastor at a time. We have once raised up a pastor from within, and then we eventually sent him out to do ministry at another church. On rare occasion, we have hired two or three pastors at the same time. Uh, my prayer is that our heartbeat as a church within the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years will slowly change and that we will together look at texts like this and say, you know what? This is biblical. This, we do want multiple men leading our church. That, I think that's what God wants for us, for the heart to change in the church. And then if it does, and we can all say together with one voice, this is what we want. And I'm here then, then I'll lead us through that change. But here's the thing. God does not bring typically meaningful and lasting change through bulldog pastors who force stuff that they want through. And while a model like this is the desire of my heart, I have no intention of forcing it on a church that does not want it. Even less would I try to force men who don't want to serve alongside me to serve alongside me. You can see how foolhearted that would be. And so if the Lord is going to bring a model like what I just proclaimed to you to our church, it will be through the church body itself examining the scriptures and saying together, 
this is biblical. We want this. My role in that is to proclaim it from the scriptures. And whenever we get to a text that teaches that, I will not shrink back from proclaiming it to you. But as I do that, I don't want you to interpret that as some bully move to get what I want through the pulpit. No, I just tell you what this book says, whether I like it or not, and whether we together like it or not. And then I leave it to the Lord to change the hearts of the people. So if God changes our hearts and we start wanting multiple pastors here in our church, great, I'll lead us there. If not, we'll just continue praying that the Lord changes us and moves us that direction. That's my hope. And that's my prayer for us is that through the preached word, he would change us. Your role then is the same as it always is. It's the role of the Bereans who we read about in Acts, who hear from the apostles. They hear new things that they had never heard before from the apostles. And what they did was they stopped, they examined the scriptures to see if it was true. And that's the burden that rests upon each of you now individually as a church. You've heard me proclaim something that's different from what we have done in the past. Now it's on each and every one of us does the scripture really say this? Let's examine it. Let's not just look at what we already believe. Let's examine what the book says. You can look up those texts that are in that Venn diagram if you want to, and let's ask together what the Lord says. My prayer is that over the course of the next several years, perhaps we'll build a structure that's much like the one that the apostles built in the early church. Let's close this morning with prayer.